invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn back to that chapter that we just read from, Hebrews chapter 4. I won't read the entire chapter again. In fact, I just want to read one verse from that portion we read earlier. That's found in verse 12. Hebrews 4 and verse 12. Listen to what it says about God's word. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Let's seek the Lord in prayer. Let's all pray. O Lord, as we bow now in thy presence with thy word open before us, we pray that we may experience the very thing of which we have now read. May we know the power of thy word. May we know its power to penetrate the depth of our souls. May we know its power to regenerate, especially those, Lord, that are yet outside the fold. May we know its power to build us up in our most holy faith. O oh Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit would bear witness to the truth of thy word and make the application to every heart need. And to that end, Lord, I plead the blood of Christ over my life. As I am the vessel, Lord, that thou hast chosen to deliver thy word at this time, I am mindful that I can accomplish nothing apart from thee. So cleanse me in the blood of Christ that I may in turn be filled with the Spirit of God. And may it please thee to grant me strength of heart and mind, clarity of thought and speech, and especially unction from on high. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This familiar verse in Hebrews describes the impact that God's word can and should have both on the unsaved sinner and on the Christian. Notice, if you will, the descriptive terms. The word is quick. This is one of those King James words that carries a different meaning than our modern-day understanding of the word quick, we think today of something that is quick when it is fast. The word quick literally means that it is living. This is a living word. The phrase quick and powerful is translated in other versions by the phrase living and active. It's also described in our text as sharp. Sharper than any two-edged sword, which means simply that the word of God is penetrating. It has the capacity for reaching your innermost soul. 
It has the capacity, the potential, if you will, for ministering to you, not only truth, but the sense of the reality of that truth. And my, that is something we need. Rather interesting to read that the word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You stop and think about that, okay? There's something uh, a little unusual about such a statement. The word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart in most instances when other books, any other book is involved, it is the reader of the book that discerns the meaning of the book. But in the case of the Bible, you have here an instance where the book reads you. This is done, of course, by the Spirit of God, applying the Word of God to the conscience of the one who reads it. You read it, and it in turn reads you. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now we've begun a study that I've entitled Bridging the Gap. I'm interested in the Christian bridging the gap between merely hearing the word and doing the word. Call to mind James's exhortation from his epistle that we are not to be hearers only of the word, but we are to be doers of the word. It's a matter of great concern in a number of Christian circles these days that we have an all-too-common phenomenon of Christians that hear the word but fail to be doers of the word. Numerous examples have been cited by authors of books and on blog posts and internet articles, etc., etc., all with a common theme and a popular theme these days, it would seem. The problem, the crisis, if you will, of those that hear the word but fail to do it. We commenced this study with a quote from Paul Tripp's book, Do You Believe? That's the title of his book. And in this book, Dr. Tripp cites a number of instances of broken homes and failing marriages and Christians professing with no testimonies where you find husbands knowing how to talk theology can debate over the finest points in theology, but fail miserably when it comes to living their theology. And what Paul Tripp does in this book is to take a dozen basic doctrines of the faith, and he divides them into two categories. The first category expounds the doctrine. The second category spells out in great detail specific ways in which each particular doctrine should impact the Christian's life. The first doctrine, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, was the doctrine of Scripture. What do you believe about Scripture? And how does your belief impact the way you live. If you, in fact, believe that the Bible is inspired of God, that it is, as it's described in our text, quick and powerful and sharp, 
then you ought to be spending time in it, shouldn't you? Uh, if this book is designed to accomplish so much in the life of the sinner and the Christian, then it certainly is incumbent upon us as Christians to make sure that we are spending time in the Word. Do you read your Bible? Now we're coming up to the end of the year. I like to put a stress uh, as we look ahead to a new year to uh, finding for yourselves a Bible reading schedule. If you don't have one already, in the coming weeks, in fact, I meant to do this today, slipped my mind completely, but I will be happy to set out on the table uh, a copy of a Bible reading schedule that I created a number of years ago in, in which I take the reader through the Bible in a year's time. And at the top of every page of this reading schedule uh, is a block, if you will, a text box that has within it what is called a meditation aid. It asks about, oh, I don't know, seven or eight questions for you to contemplate with each chapter that you're reading. And the way this Bible reading schedule is laid out is there are uh, lines for you to write upon uh, with each chapter that's assigned to you, uh, providing answers to one or more of those questions. I'll be happy to reproduce that for anyone who's interested in it. It kind of takes you a little bit um, beyond merely reading the Bible. If you actually take those meditation aid questions to heart, uh, it can help you to think about what you're reading, which is certainly a necessity. In my analysis in our last study, I pointed out that if you're going to bridge the gap between hearing and doing the word, you must first face the reality of such a gap, and then you must become, at the very least, a hearer of the word. You remember I said that we're not to choose between hearing and doing. Hearing must come first. You cannot be a doer of the word if you fail to hear the word. There's no way that you'll be a doer if you're not even a hearer. The Christian, simply put, must spend time in God's word. The last point I made in that study, and this is what I want to zoom in on today in greater detail, the last point in that study is that the Christian must internalize the word. Okay, not enough to simply drag your eyes over the words. Not enough really to even give a little thought to what you're reading. That Bible, it, it must serve the function that is described in our text in Hebrews 12. It must be something that reaches the depth of your soul. You must internalize the word. It has to reach more than your head. In other words, it needs to reach your heart. Transformation in the Christian's life, you see, takes place from the inside first and then works its way out in the Christian's life. It's actually possible, you know, 
to appear like a hearer and doer of the word without actually being a hearer and doer of the word. The Pharisees in Christ's time were famous for that kind of appearance. So we find Christ saying to them in Matthew 23 and verse 25, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. It is possible to bear the appearance of hearing and doing, and yet uh, you remain what Christ would in another instance call a whited sepulcher, okay? a whitewashed tomb, so to speak. So today I want to take a closer look at this notion of internalizing the word. Let me say at the outset of the study that I, I will be borrowing some points from Paul Tripp's book. He actually lists 11 ways in which the Word of God impacts a Christian's life. Don't anyone start to get frightened yet? I'm not going to give you an 11-point sermon this morning. I commend his book to you, but what I'm going to do is merge and rename a few of his points and reduce the number that I cover. I want to regard the ones I regard that, that, that I consider to be among the more important points when it comes to bridging the gap between hearing and doing. The impact of God's word on the Christian's life, then. That's my title. That's my theme. And in treating the theme, I'll simply raise and answer the question, how does or how should God's word impact the Christian's life? How should God's word impact the Christian's life? Uh, I'll, I'll broaden the implication, or, or the application rather. How should God's word impact the lost sinner's life? Well, that leads quite naturally into the first point I want to consider, and that is simply this. God's Word saves. God's Word saves. It brings salvation. For unto us the gospel was the gospel preached. The author of Hebrews writes in verse 2 from chapter 4, unto us was the gospel preached. When we speak of God's revelation, theologians recognize two sources of God's revelation. There's what's called the book of nature, sometimes referred to as general revelation. And then there's what is referred to as special revelation. General revelation, special revelation. General revelation is what you get in nature, okay? The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19. The heavens do declare that, don't they? You stand outside on a clear night when you can behold uh, the stars in their wonder, and they do declare God's glory. 
I heard it said, I haven't tried to track this down as to the truth of the statement. Uh, some of you people may know this or can affirm this better than I can, but it has been said that there are actually more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on the planet Earth. Is that true? Could that be? Um, perhaps. I haven't tried to count either one. And, uh, but that may indeed be the case. The point is, the heavens declare the glory of God. The vastness of this universe displays for us uh, the, the splendor of the God that we worship and serve. It tells of his eternal power and his divinity, according to Paul in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. Man knows inherently, he tries to suppress it, but in the bottom of his heart, he knows inherently that he is a creature of God, that he was made by God, and therefore he's accountable to God. You will answer to him. I remember a man I witnessed too many years ago when I was very young in the Lord, worked in a silk screening plant, and I was telling a fellow worker about the doctrine of heaven and hell. Uh, this man was uh, a pseudo-scholar of sorts. I think he prided himself in being a philosopher, and he said to me, how can I go to hell? I don't even believe in hell. Poor fool. Uh, to think that the reality of something depends on your belief in it? Oh my, no, heaven and hell are, are, are very real. Your belief in it notwithstanding. Okay? But creation all around us testifies that we are the creatures of God, that we are accountable to him. But nature or general revelation says nothing to us about salvation. The stars declare the glory of God, but the stars do not proclaim the gospel. It takes the Bible to tell us about that. So Paul Tripp notes in his book, without the Bible there would be no narrative of redemption, no clear gospel message, no knowledge of the plan of God, no knowledge of sin and God's offer of forgiveness. No other tool is more central to God's work of redemptive rescue than the Word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God. Without the Bible, we would be hopelessly lost without God and without hope in this terribly fallen world. End quote. The message of the gospel begins by showing us God's law. The most concise summary statement of that law is found in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Uh, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor thy father and thy mother. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. Now when Jesus walked this earth, 
The Pharisees thought that they were obeying these commandments. They were quite, quite complacent on the matter, patted themselves on the back, flattered themselves into thinking that they were righteous. All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? The rich young ruler asks Christ in Matthew 19 and verse 20. And if all there was to the Ten Commandments was an external behavioral type of compliance, it might be argued that the Pharisees were keeping the commandments. But when Christ preached his Sermon on the Mount, he made it very plain that the law weighs more than actions. It also weighs the thoughts and intents of the heart. Every thought you harbor, every word you speak, must measure up to the law, and your motives must be right. You remember what Christ said in his Sermon on the Mount? You're unjustly angry with a fellow human. In God's word, you've, you've murdered him. You've broken the law, thou shalt not kill. You look on a woman with lust in your heart. You've broken the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Doesn't take the act. Only takes the lust of the heart. Christ emphasized what the Jews should have already known, that the essence of the law is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and soul and might. That's the essence of it. And anything that falls short of that doesn't measure up to the standard. I wonder this morning, have you felt the impact of that? Have you felt the impact of the law and all that it weighs? Have you examined yourself in the light of what it reveals as God's standards, which are in keeping with God's character? Have you sensed in your mind and heart that at your best you come short of the glory of God? That's how the law, you know, drives us to Christ. If you've been honest before God, when you come to understand the true extent to which the law of God applies, then like the Jews on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, you'll find yourself compelled to cry out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They had just been accused of the greatest crime imaginable to the Jewish imagination. The Messiah has come. Your whole purpose for existing was to bring him into this world. And now he's come and you could do no better than to crucify him. And they were pierced in their hearts. They felt the reality of it. They knew that they had sinned. They were under conviction. And it led to a heart cry. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Have you cried out that way from your heart? This is what bridges the gap, you see, between being mere hearers of the word and doers of the word. Doers of the word see their need for a savior. Thankfully, Peter knew what to tell his audience that so cried out. 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, Acts 2.38. And a few verses later we read, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. Let me pause there, because I I have always found that word amazing. Then they that gladly received his word. They had just been convicted to the depth of their souls. They had just been accused of the crime of crucifying the Messiah. They had owned up to the crime. And now it says they gladly received the word. Well, they came to recognize that the word included a word of salvation. They gladly received the word because they came to understand that this all served the purpose of the ages, which was Christ coming and dying on Calvary's cross for our sins. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. There's the response to the word of God receiving it and receiving it gladly and identifying with Christ. In other words, believing in him by faith. Now our text back in Hebrews 4 tells us in verse 2, For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. I read a text like that, and I think of our little church family here, and it leads me to cry out, Oh, Lord, will there be those from our little church who stand before thee on judgment day, who failed to mix faith with the hearing of the word, never believed it, never responded to it, never gladly received it, never identified with Christ by faith. Oh, Lord, empower your word. Make those who have not responded to it uh, awake to the truth and reality of it. You bridge the gap between hearing and doing, you see, with the response of faith. You call on Christ to save you. That's what faith does. You call on Christ to save you. Have you done that? Will you do that? Or will you go through life assuming that all is well between you and God because you were born into a Christian family or because you're in church every Sunday? That won't do. That's the same kind of presumption that the Jews held to in Christ's day. Presumers are hearers only and hearers who do not personally bridge the gap between hearing and doing by personally calling on Christ to save them. They're not Christians. They're lost. And I can't help but sense and but fear that there are those, even in our little group this morning, that come into that category. You're lost. You haven't responded by faith this way. You haven't called on Christ. Oh, may God compel you. 
even this day. Those that do respond, according to our text in Hebrews 4, they enter into rest. For we which have believed do enter into rest. Verse 3. And the rest that is in view here is the rest that comes from a settled assurance that all is well between you and God because the issue of your sin and your judgment has been settled by Christ. You've learned of him. You've been taught of him in the word of God. You beheld him dying in your place. You believe the gospel accounts that he came, that he died, that he's risen, that he's ascended into heaven. So that's the first thing that the word of God does then. It saves. It shows you the law, and it shows you your sin, and then it shows you Christ, and it compels you to flee to him. Am I describing you this morning? Has the word of God impacted you this way? These are not hard things to understand, you know. Paul writes to Timothy and tells him in 2 Timothy 3.15, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing too deep here that is beyond comprehension. Oh, there are things pr profound, and there are things that uh, arguably are beyond comprehension, but knowing your sin, and knowing who Christ is, and knowing his invitation, and responding to his invitation by calling upon him, that's easily understandable. That from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. So the word of God saves. But let's move on to consider, secondly, in a similar vein, that the word of God also sanctifies. It saves and it sanctifies. Paul Tripp actually includes this in his first point, that the word of God saves, and it's appropriate to consider his theme under that heading because sanctification is a part of salvation. You can think of salvation uh, from a threefold perspective, what it's done for you in the past, what it's doing for you now, what it will do for you in the future. When we think of sanctification, we are thinking of what salvation does for us now, in the here and now, at this present moment. Gospel power, you see, is not a once and done kind of thing. You perhaps heard it said, and I know I've cited this myself from that text in Romans chapter 1, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. And the word for power in that verse is the same word from which we get the English word dynamite. The gospel is the dynamite of God. Now I get that. But there is something that can be a little bit misleading in that application because when you're talking about dynamite, you're talking about a blast that occurs and in an instant it's done. 
Well, that's not gospel power. Gospel power, you might say, is the ongoing explosion of that dynamite. A present power as well as a past power, an ongoing kind of thing. Listen again to what Paul Tripp writes. Without the Bible, we would be hopelessly lost, without God and without hope in this terribly fallen world. But there is so much more. God's work of salvation is not done. He is still at work in your heart, exposing remaining sin, convicting you of what is wrong, and enabling you by grace to live in brand new ways. Brings to mind that text in Corinthians, uh, all things have become new, old things have passed away. The word of God, you see, is essential not only for justifying grace, but for sanctifying grace as well. John 17, verses 16 and 17. Paul Tripp continues, If you are serious about growing in grace as a single person, as a student, as a professional, as a mom or dad, as a husband or wife, in your job, as a friend or a neighbor, or a member of the body of Christ, then you should be committed to the regular study of God's Word. If you are concerned about a life of thought and desire that is pleasing to your Lord, then you should live in God's Word. End quote. Salvation, you see, brought you into the family of God. You gained a relationship with God that the natural man does not have. You became a son of God or a child of God. 1 John 3 and verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. You have entered into a relationship that the world doesn't understand, and you ought to be the kind of person that puzzles and perplexes the world because all things have become new, and because you become a child of God. And once you became a child of God, then the Bible took on a whole new purpose in your life. It became the means through which you commune with your Father in heaven. This is how the Christian bridges the gap between hearing and doing, now the doing part, you could say, becomes prayer on your part. You begin your day, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I might add here that if you don't know how to start your day, you can utilize those very words. Our Father which art in heaven. It's fine to utilize the words of the Lord's Prayer as long as you're actually praying them and not simply reciting them. The point I'm now wanting to drive home is that Paul Tripp is right. The Word of God sanctifies. Our shorter catechism defines sanctification this way. 
Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. It is a work. It is an ongoing process. This is something that takes place on a daily basis, dying more and more unto sin, living more and more unto righteousness. Now, there's a very close connection between our sanctification and the Word of God. In his high priestly prayer, Christ prayed in John 17 and verse 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You see the connection there? Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. It is through the word of God, you see, that we learn the truth about sin and righteousness. You cannot begin to die more and more to sin and live more and more unto righteousness without gaining the right knowledge about sin and righteousness. I said in my introduction that the Bible is unlike any other book and that it's a book that reads you as much as you read it. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Lord tells us through Jeremiah the prophet that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? He goes on to ask. Through God's word, with the help of God's spirit, you can come to know your heart at least to a greater degree than you could otherwise. So bridging the gap between hearing and doing then can be done by copying the example of the psalmist when he prays in Psalm 139, verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Oh, there's a good example of becoming a doer, emulating that example, utilizing that very same prayer. Lord, search my heart. Lord, I invite you to convict me of my sins because my desire is to overcome them and because I know that there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. I can remember many years ago when we still lived in Greenville, there was a matter at that time that was much on my heart pertaining to my service to the Lord. I remember reading from 1 Corinthians 3. Paul writes, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. And then I remember how the words just about jumped off the page. It was as if the Holy Spirit himself was shouting at me, For ye are yet carnal. God said that to me. And I was. And I was glad that he said that to me. And that he set me straight. 
in the matters that I was contemplating. Oh, it was a convicting word, and that's one of the functions that God's word serves. Paul Tripp devotes a number of paragraphs to the heading, the word convicts. And indeed it does. But if you're going to bridge the gap between being a hearer and doer of the word, then you must go to the word with an open heart that invites God, the way the psalmist does, to search your heart to see if there be any wicked way in you. Do you approach God's word that way? Do you go to him in prayer and ask him for an open heart before his open word and look to him to reveal your own heart to you? It might seem like an undesirable thing to do at first, but note what else the psalmist prays for in Psalm 139 when he says, See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me in the way everlasting. Being led in the way everlasting amounts to being led to Christ for cleansing and for forgiveness. This is why we can invite the Lord to conduct this kind of searching of our hearts because he will lead us in the way everlasting. Lord, take a dealing with me. My own heart is deceitful. I tend to flatter myself. We were dealing with Mr. Flatterer in Sunday school. I think we probably left out an important point that we all have a tendency to flatter ourselves. Mr. Flatterer is alive and well within. In other words, we have a tendency to be puffed up when it comes to our own sense of righteousness. But if I'm going to be a doer of the word, I'll go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, show it to me. Show me my sin. I invite you, blessed Spirit of God, to take a dealing with my life. Show me my sins because there is forgiveness with thee. Show me my sins that I may seek thee for that forgiveness and then lead me in the way everlasting, giving me cleansing, giving me forgiveness, giving me overcoming power to conquer the besetting sin within. That's how we die to sin and live to righteousness. We commune with Christ, the incarnate word, through the written word, and we respond to the Spirit's leading by confessing our sins, repenting of our sins, seeking the needed grace to overcome our sins, and we learn to discern between sin and righteousness through the teaching ministry of the Word of God. There's another category. I'm not going to go into it, but you know it. The Word of God teaches us the ways of righteousness and what is sinful. So the Word of God saves, and in close connection with the Word of God saving, the Word of God sanctifies. Let me close with one more point, which is this. The Word of God motivates. The Word of God motivates. My favorite section in this chapter of Paul Tripp's book is under the heading of the Word of God motivating. Let me give you 
a rather extensive quote here. Bear with me, if you will. I don't know how it could be put any plainer than what Paul Tripp writes. He says, and I quote, Though I love what I have been called to do, I don't always wake up every day feeling motivated. Sometimes I feel unable. Sometimes the task seems too great. Sometimes I'm exhausted. Sometimes I doubt the outcome of my work. Sometimes laziness is more of a struggle than it was the previous day. Sometimes troubles distract me. Let's be honest. Faith isn't natural for us. Doubt is natural. Worry is natural. Denial is natural. Fear is natural. But the courage of faith is not natural for us. Here again is one of the ways the word of God is a huge blessing. God stoops to meet me in my struggle and motivates me through the great and precious promises of his word. We find literally thousands of promises in Scripture. God's promises mark every kind of biblical literature and litter every period of biblical history. Wherever his people are, whatever they are facing, God greets them with his promises. He does this to motivate their faith and to cause them to act with courage. His promises encourage, strengthen, and instill hope. And because they do, they motivate us to resist giving up and to continue to do what he has called us to do. Because of God's promises to us, we don't gauge our ability or potential for success or victory based on our righteousness, wisdom, or strength, but on the magnitude and surety of what he has promised us. So even when we know we are weak and are aware of our failures, we continue because of all the good things that he has promised to be for us, do for us, and deliver to us. You don't need me to tell you that life in this fallen world can be heartbreakingly discouraging. Everything from mechanical failures to failures of family and friends can make life complicated and difficult. And because we're not able to see what is coming around the corner, we don't know when life will get tough again. We also have to deal with our own weakness and proneness to wander. But we see God's tender heart as he rains his promises down on us so that we would be soaked with his motivating grace. Hard, dry seasons will come, but we are invited to step into the rain of the promises of God, of God's word, to drink in new hope and strength, to rise up again with renewed motivation to do what God has called us to do in the places where he has positioned us. You don't need to run to the current popular motivational speaker to boost your hope and courage. No, you just need to daily run to the word of God. God's promises not only motivate you, they also build confidence and trust in God into your heart and guide you according to how God has called you to live. End quote.
So we draw strength from the promise of sins forgiven. We draw motivation and courage from the steadfastness of Christ's love. We gain patience from the assurance that he's with us and for us, that he's doing all things well, and that nothing can ever sever us from his love. All of this requires, of course, that we be not hearers only, but doers of the word. And being a doer of the word amounts for the most part of going to God through Christ with an open heart and an open Bible before him. So how about it today, Christian? Will you bridge the gap? Will you profit from the word because you mix a doing faith with your hearing? The word is written to draw you to Christ. Let's start putting the word, therefore, to its intended use and bridge the gap. Let's close then in prayer. O oh Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we pray that thou wilt help us to understand what an unusual phenomenon the Bible is. That it's not simply a book. Not simply a book that in many instances is difficult to understand. But it is a book through which we can commune with our God and know the blessing of the promises ministered to our hearts, so motivating us to overcome our besetting sins and live with the name for thy glory. O oh Lord, all of this requires us putting the Bible to good use. May there be no one here that is a hearer only who fails to be a doer of thy word. And for those, Lord, that have not yet come to know its saving power, I pray especially for such as these, that thy word would reach them even this very day with the truth and reality of their sin and their eternal destiny headed for hell and the good news that Christ has intervened so that sinners need not go to hell. O oh Lord, compel any that are lost to flee to Christ this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.